0: Ranger Candy Coffee Company is a veteran-owned, handcrafted premium coffee roaster located in Shoehorn Bend, Arkansas. They offer a variety of single origin and flavored coffee. Their coffee is roasted and packaged by husband and wife duo Larry and Sierra Littlefoot. Ranger Candy Coffee Company has also partnered with Disabled American Veterans, a 501c4 nonprofit that supports combat veterans in their post-war readjustment process. They donate a portion of their profits to them as a way to give back. So when you shop at Ranger Candy Coffee Company, know that you are supporting not only a veteran-owned small business, you are also supporting an outstanding veterans nonprofit. Check out Ranger Candy Coffee Company's selection of special blends, K-Cups, Single origin and flavor coffee at rangercoffeecandycompany.com, use promo code Andres Segovia, and get free shipping on your order. So go to rangercandycoffeecompany.com, choose your blend, size, and brew, and taste America in every sip.
1: This is the Andres
0: Segovia Show. All right, so it looks like we are live. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Andres Segovia Show. I'm your host, Andres Segovia. On this episode... I think a lot of you have a lot in mind about what's going on culturally, uh, especially with some of your favorite, uh, I guess, movies or TV shows or stories that you grew up with and watching them go to the crapper because of wokeness. And that's the very reason why I I decided to bring on the program uh, someone that I've been on his program, the Critical Introverts host,
1: uh, Senior Phil. Senior Phil, welcome to the Andres Giovia show. Hi. uh, It's nice to be on. Uh, I'm excited to... Just see where this goes.
0: Yeah, and uh, those of you that missed out on the stream, because this uh, if you didn't tune into the stream, uh, that I had a creator stream, I had creators from other mm-hmm. platforms on, uh, that's where Senior Filth in, uh, appeared on my program. But it didn't make the podcast. So as for some of you that are not familiar uh, with that, uh, Senior Filth, can you introduce yourself to the audience so they'll have an idea of <laughs> who you are and what you do? Uh,
1: yeah, I go by the name of Senior Filth. It's not my legal name, but it's just a... <laughs> a silly name I just made up for my podcast. Uh, it's a critical introverts podcast uh, idea of the show is I pretty much just bring on artists and creatives. And we pretty much talk about things within the, you know, culture war mm-hmm. uh, because I, I do think there's a, a huge um, kind of creative element to the culture war because it's very media based. And um, mm-hmm. when you're, within the art world you have an eye you have to have like an eye for detail and i think a lot of this what's going on is that you know a lot of people just don't pay attention to cultural things but for any kind of a creative person that's sort of what you have to do whether it's you know whether you do you you paint or whatever you make music you have to be kind of in tune with what's going on culturally so I mean that's that's kind of the idea why I started the show.
0: <clears throat> yeah, and I've seen you have uh, some guests that are are in the field, whether they've been uh, I think screenwriters, mostly artists that I've noticed. Like I want mm-hmm. say artists, like artists, like uh, <laughs> uh, pencilers or or drawers. Um, uh, of sorts. Yeah, I think some of them were like comic book uh, and graphic <laughs> artists.
1: And uh, mostly graphic artists. Um, a lot of a uh, lot a lot of caricature artists. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd like to also. I mean, I haven't really had a chance to have any like musician types uh, mm-hmm. on yet, um, but that is something I, I would definitely like to kind of get on because one of my uh, one of the people that has been involved with the show from the beginning, uh, she does a lot of the cover art for. Uh, there's a guy named the Marine rapper. I don't know if you've heard of him. I don't think uh, I. Don't he's he's like a big kind of like a conservative. Rapper that's kind of getting some traction right nowadays, and I would love to like have him on and have a lot of the kind of. There's a a weird circle of like conservative rappers that are becoming kind of popular, like Mm. uh, what's like Topher. I'm bad with remembering the names, (laughs) but uh, yeah, there's a couple that I would like to have at least some on just to kind of, especially because they're hip hop guys and. Yeah. I grew up, you know, I'm a big hip hop, like old school hip hop guy, and. Mm. I just like talking about that kind of stuff and to talk about hip-hop and tie it in with the culture war stuff would be kind of fun for me. <laughs> but yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, Who's the guy that made that anthem Let's Go Brandon? Because uh, that dude just like,
1: I never heard of him before that and after that he's like everywhere. Uh, I think there was a couple of guys that sort of jumped on that. Uh, I, I want to say Topher was one of the main guys. Hmm. Um... But, yeah, I think there's a few guys, and I think, that, I think they even started, like, a beef thing of, like, who started it first kind of shit. But <laughs> uh, it's okay if I curse on huh?
0: <laughs> man. Okay. Okay. All right. okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I think there's a lot of similarities in, I guess, in the artistic field um, and the thing that you've been covering because there is the common denominator in all of them is that uh, the creativity that they, they would bring in mm-hmm. is snuffed out. Yeah. and even for those that are not i guess uh, all in on what what's going on with the wokeness or whatever and uh, me coming from the from a christian background okay. we know this too there there was a there is a comedian john christ um, who, who had his little uh, controversy about a year ago when Netflix dropped his special and his book was canceled or I don't know what happened to it back mm-hmm. or a place in the back burner. Um, but he's been yeah. making a comeback these past few months after his, or some rehab of his. And he did a, he did a video skit that I, I really, really think hit the nail right on the head uh, because uh, it was um, uh, a young Christian band that wanted to break into uh, mainstream Christian music. And they went with mm-hmm. the big labels, and the whole thing is that the the label was basically uh, as the band comes in, they're, they're pitching what their like their style, their songs, and whatever. And uh, the label was that, "We love it, let's change it." So mm-hmm. they would they would tell them like, "All right, we want to do this and do that, and like to switch it up, take out some of these words and put this instead." And that's my timer going off, it's that uh, and put this one instead. So in other words, they're changing everything that the yeah. band is and making them kind of toll in line with the um, the cookie cutter uh, uh, bands that are out there so they can't yeah. differentiate them and the band was like hey, no that's not what we are it looks like this is not going to work out so they had the, at the last uh moment the the pro- production label makes them an offer is like and we'll put you on this it, it's it's a uh, it's like the billboards uh, kind of thing for for yeah. for Christianity uh, for for Christian music where it's like we'll put you on the the worship album of this this and that and they're like oh okay yeah, yeah we'll do it you know and that's like that's their compromise they all right fine forget our our creativity we want in on that and I think that's and uh, that one was like uh, it, it was funny because it's like it was it was lighthearted in the way mm-hmm. but now we're we've seen the effects of how extreme it is with. Mm-hmm. And I guess we could point to, in a way, uh, Star Wars be, it being the... Um, not, it wasn't the first, but it was definitely the catalyst for a lot of this attention that people that were complaining about it before weren't paying attention because uh, the wokeness wasn't the Force Awakens. That's Disney Star yeah. Wars. And then it all just went to hell in a handbasket with The Last Jedi. But before that, there was still uh, the Ghostbusters reboot. Um, they made that one all-female. Um, yeah. There was Kathleen Kennedy. Even before uh, any of these movies came out, she started putting on a shirt on the Force's female and things like that. And and I bring up Star Wars because we're going to have to touch on it for any whether you're watching or not watching Kenobi, it's in (laughs) the news
1: for all the wrong reasons. Uh, Well, um, like I, I, I'm not sure how close like the wokeness is with like the idea of mainstream killing uh, creativity because. Like I said, I've been a, a hip hop fan for since I was young, <clears throat> but I kind of stopped listening to anything mainstream music related by the time I don't know, like maybe like two thousand three, maybe. Because mm. I just I saw it. There was like a the creativity and the fun of it was sort of being gutted out, and you know, I guess the best example, the best, yeah, the best example I can bring up is. Uh, The band Black Eyed Peas, which is... I I think everyone kind of knows them. Mm -hmm. Anything that they've done... uh, Like, when they actually first started out, uh, like, in the late 90s, I think, like, 98 uh, was their first album. I want to say it was Bridging the Gap. If you listen to that, and you listen to any of their newer stuff, it's a completely different sound. Like, the original stuff is is fun. It has a great, like, just old-school hip-hop feel to it. It's still... (laughs) has that Black Eyed Peas, you know, energy to it, Mm -hmm. but it's not what the hell they are now. It's so, I mean, I remember, uh, I remember, like, when their first song broke out, their first, like, mainstream pop song, uh, came out, that was just, like, it was just so terrible to me that, like, I saw how much, like, how poppy they turned into, and it was just, like, uh, it was just like a stab in the heart. Like, oh no, they were, they were such a fun, awesome group, but now they just they sound like, like in sync. Now it's just, oh, <laughs> it's god, it's awful. So, yeah, I've been noticing for a while, like, a lot of the mainstream has been just, the quality of it has been kind of sh- shittier and shittier over the years, and um, I, I do think a lot of like this culture war stuff has to do with people just disassociating themselves from whatever the mainstream is and whatever niche they've been into. Mm. Like they've just sort of like said, fuck whatever the mainstream is on whatever thing I follow. I'm just going to find my own thing through the internet, whether it be, you know, movies or comic books or something like that. There's a weird like underground culture to it. Uh, that's really interesting. And that, that like, when I'm talking to the people about these kind of things, I know that we have similarities in that we've sort of, we're people that like have gone away from whatever the mainstream was. And mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of fun. And, yeah,
0: so. And I guess uh, there are two contrasting uh, school of thoughts here. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's worth exploring, touching on one to differentiate what the other is because wokeness is not lack of creativity in that sense. It's mm-hmm. literally politicizing, taking something original yeah. and just butchering it because you want to make a political statement. And yeah. instead of creating your own character or story that can then be sold to the public, you hijack a pop, a popular property and just yeah. shove your politics down someone else's throat. That's that's wokeness. But uh, the thing that you were touching there, which, I, like I said, I think it's worth um, highlighting too because um, it's... I complain about it in my field of stuff that I like, Um, Mm -hmm. and that has to be with the lack of originality, the lack of creativity, including Mm -hmm. those that used to be at the forefront of these things. Now, some of these things could be like, well, it's hard to stay fresh after so Mm -hmm. many years that they morph and change so much. And the thing could be applied even to to my show. My show, uh, it's predominantly interviews as of 2022. Mm -hmm. But you go back three years ago, it's really heavy on the real estate And I try to keep it as pro as possible. But I always knew it was going to be a learning curve. What I didn't want was uh, at the first for my show to return to what it used to be. And, and just uh, alienate a bunch of people just because I, I would just be uh, doing political activism and commentary uh, without yeah. a care in the world what anybody else had to say. Because that was me back in the old days. I, I didn't want to mm-hmm. be that anymore because if everybody's shouting, nobody's listening. So right. this time it's like, well, I want to bridge the gap of what I know how to do and help, uh, for a living and help other people and inform them. So to me, this has kept the show fresh, but it's also alienated a bit of the fan base because like, Mm -hmm. where's the tech stuff? Where's all this and that? They they love it when I chime in on tech. Um, uh, I'm not talking about big tech specifically. I'm talking about technology because not everybody cares because they don't don't mind being a piece of it, right? So with with respects to... um, uh, my, my favorite thing is, is, is film score. Uh, so, uh, film mm-hmm. music that, that applies even to television, video games, things like that. But the, the thing that most people would associate with the movie would be um, a movie soundtrack. That's mm-hmm. not the correct moniker, but let's just call it that for what it is. Yeah. And the studios would like a sound and then use it again to death. Like, okay, why do we need the inception brah, on everything? <laughs> yeah. Hans Zimmer had an interview some years ago uh, that I liked when I said, Hey, how do you what what is it like to uh, to be at the forefront of things that you do, this cool sound that you find and people like it? This is well, I hate it because I can't use it again. <laughs> because they took it. It's like yeah. it's been played to death. And like, well, yeah, that's true. So the studios uh it, basically create this sound and you, you kind of like oh that's Hans Zimmer you went no that's not Hans Zimmer. It's, yeah. it's either one of his students or someone that's told, you know, just do what he did. It's like yeah. and it ruins it. And very rarely does an opportunity come along like twenty years ago with uh with Lord of the Rings and what Howard Shore did. Uh and even that that relationship was in itself ruined when mm uh the the king kong project with peter jackson fell through because it created differences with the music three weeks before the release of the movie but then when they came back to do the hobbit anybody remember the music
1: of the hobbit i don't think so i don't think really a lot of people remember the hobbit movies because i didn't i didn't really care for those I i don't watch them i mean besides uh what's the dragon's name smog smog yeah yeah that was the only thing i remember from those movies at all, like, and it was so disappointing because I loved the Lord of the movies, but the ho- and I, I, I really, as growing up, I loved uh, the animated Hobbit, Ralph Bakshi movie mm. um, from the seventies, and to see that film and just see how just uninteresting and boring it was was uh, it really sucks because. God, at first, it
0: was supposed to be great. Uh, like yeah. it had a
1: lot of things going for it.
0: Guillermo wasn't
1: him, uh, yeah, thought it was supposed to be the director. Think, yeah, right?
0: was yeah, and he was. Yeah. He was a director. But then MGM, which was the main financier, was running into all those hardships. He mm-hmm. already burned a lot of the bridges, uh, leaving all these projects in the air, moving to New Zealand uh, to start developing this work on the script. He was working mm-hmm. hard on the script, but then things were put on hold and he moved there for like two years. So in the meanwhile, while he was doing <clears> that, he worked with Chuck Hogan to do the the strain. Um, 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 horror uh, book series, which is yeah. a great read, by the way. I, I think it's more Chuck Hogan than it is uh, or the Chuck Dixon, one of those two. I think it's more him than it is Guillermo del Toro, but still, um, the fact that Guillermo was involved in it uh, is yeah. what, what elevates it. But it, the project never took off. He ended up leaving. So, I, I can't anymore. Anybody that remembers anything? That's why James Bond. There were so many gaps in between the uh, between the movies. Like, dude, why did they take forever to make the sequels? Because MGM was literally bankrupt, and
1: their the most wasn't expensive it, property was James Bond. Wasn't it supposed to be two movies, and then they just decided to make it a trilogy or something like that?
0: Yes, because oh,
1: because Peter Jackson is nuts. It, just, it, you it, could well. tell too, because I remember uh, watching the second one and. That was the first movie that I can remember in a long time that like I almost fell asleep in yeah. cuz the second one is just so boring. And <laughs> again, I like I well, love the Lord of the Rings, but well he, uh, here's a
0: here's a little bit of uh um inside baseball. Uh that was the the last movie um I was invited by Warner Brothers to go see on your mm-hmm. show, I, I towards the end, there, I was talking about how I was part of um, – involved a lot with Warner Brothers, with some <laughs> movies, yeah. particularly The Dark Knight, which is the highlight of my career as an amateur movie critic. But mm-hmm. the last one, and this is the one they made me sign an NDA for, um, mm-hmm. so I couldn't review it, was the the second one, The, the Hobbit. I, I don't even remember the, the name of the second movie. I didn't see oh, the
1: first cold. one. Yeah, the first one's
0: not nice. I didn't see the first one. Uh, like, like the the journey. Something the journey begins like that. Whatever. So the second one, because the third one was a stupid name, a Battle of the Six for Five, army, five whatever Armies, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like oh my goodness, that that, that really <laughs> sounds dumb. Um, so the second the second one, I was invited, and I'm I'm. This was so cringy. I'm watching this bloated CGI fest, and like oh my goodness, why is this the worst in Jurassic Park? Uh, yeah. And when it was done, they wanted us to give them the hot take because they were mm-hmm. going to use it for for the promos. Yeah. So this is how, this is how they get the hot take, people. It was better than the first, yeah. And that's what they run with. <laughs> and I was being honest because I didn't see the first one. That's how.
1: That's how bad I didn't want to see it. I, but it's- <laughs> I would say I think the from best of my memory. I think the first one is probably better because, um, like I said, the second one is just so boring. Um, but even the third one's kind of boring too because the third one is just the battle and. It just kind of goes nowhere and gets kind of silly. And, uh, yeah, and, yeah, and there's extended versions of all three. What? <laughs> yeah, the hell, man. And there, and there's there is some cool, like, uh, there are some cool parts in the second one, but they just don't work. Like there's a there's a part where they're going uh, with a with are they dwarfs or yes. trolls? Anyways. Uh, they're going through like this stream, and they're being chased by orcs. I think at the same time, which on face value sounds like a cool scene, but it just it goes it drags so long that it, like we're time about it the, just gets killed.
0: We're we're talking about the the river, right? Where they're yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was supposed to be like the the epic um, action sequence, yeah, that set to hell with all laws of physics and gravity. It was I. I hated that scene. Like, dude, is there no there's yeah. no concept of physics here? Uh, it, <laughs> it was it was really distracting. But therein goes a point in that someone so revered that his name alone sold the movie, Peter Jackson.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All that goodwill went down the drain because yeah. he left his strengths. He balanced practicality and CGI with Lord of the Rings, and he yeah. was known for his horror movies, his B horror movies. You know, the they're over actually the really good too. Yes, his, his early movies. Yeah, so he had he to me I just think of him as the the New Zealand Sam Raimi or, or like the Kiwi yeah, version of Sam Raimi. Yeah. Um yeah, cuz there's a, there's a lot of
1: evil dead-ish in his Yeah, he, it's it's horror but it has a zaniness to it that's very Peter Jackson. Um Yeah. Like oh, have you the... seen Yeah, any of his early stuff like uh, Dead Alive is great. Have you seen that one? it's a, well, a zombie know the, movie
0: yeah i don't i don't know if that's the name of the is that the one where uh, the guy gets the lawnmower potty's yeah. over yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: actually i think there's two titles i think one is brain dead i think the original and then i think in the states i think it's called dead alive i want to say mm.
0: well that's um, that's probably why great. i get messed up with the with the yeah. names but yeah that scene is so over the top and hilarious yeah. <laughs> uh, and it works it's so him bringing that horror i guess element over to lord of the rings it worked because it, yeah. it really st- set up a creep factor in the first movie because the whole the mystery and the and the world building and all that but then that all went out the window with king
1: kong that's why i'm like oh my goodness i, I there's something about peter jackson that it's i kind of feel bad for him because he's one of those guys that like i think he works best when he's Like you said, like he's kind of has a zaniness to him, but when his stuff is too taken seriously, like King Kong, it just kind of, it just doesn't really work. Like King Kong, He, he stepped away
0: from what he knew how to do. Because mm-hmm. the, the the practicality of Lord of the Rings and uh, the use of CGI there is, is married so well that mm-hmm. watching it in 4K <laughs> as I recently did, I'm like, this looks absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I did not like the way King Kong looked when I first saw it, and it must look even worse now, especially the dinosaur chase sequence, which is absolutely <laughs> pathetic. And then after that, is The Hobbit, where he starts going 60 frames per second, and people are yeah. getting dizzy. Well, I'm like, dude, I'm not even interested, I don't care. He's gonna look like a freaking soap opera,
1: not interested. What? What's the last? What's the most recent Peter Jackson thing to come out? I can't he really.
0: technically turned the World War One pictures and videos and colorized them, so he made That's it. A, but little, no, uh,
1: no big feature. Because I can't really think. Of anything I can't think of anything
0: since the since the five battle, uh oh, the five
1: armies thingy. Yeah, because uh, every. Do you know the movie? Um, I think it's called Sullivan's Travels. I you heard know, it was it's an old season. black and white movie, but like the theme of the movie. It's about that there's this uh, filmmaker, uh, Sullivan something, uh, but he's known to make like these kind of just generally entertaining movies, and he has this, he decides to quit all that, and he wants to make his masterpiece. Like So he goes on this journey, and long story short, he, he kind of, it ends, I think it ends with him just being in a theater, watching people uh, just laugh at a comedy, and then he has this moment of like, you know what? Movies can just be made to just be entertaining, and I think Peter Jackson probably he, he's he kind of reminds me of like that Sullivan's Travel guy. Like he needs to just go back to making those movies because I don't. I guess maybe we could touch on this later, but like I think there's a um, like I think funness and entertainment kind of is taken for granted. Mm-hmm. and people always think that it, it, like in order for something to be taken seriously it has to have like a serious even up like a political message to it and yes. yeah 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 hence this so <clears throat>
0: but something that you touched on there love him hate him tom cruise and the films that he's done Mm-hmm. recently and what he's going to do i'm excited for these next mission impossible movies what he and christopher quarterman the director have been able to accomplish it's like dude you mm-hmm. breathe life into a franchise that's like tr- almost 30 years
1: old when all said and done yeah I, uh i think tom cruise is rather underrated i'm not saying he's like the greatest actor but i can't think of a movie where he doesn't like totally bring it mm. um because there's some like a uh, what's the movie? What was the last Justice the Justice League movie? Who was the Batman? Ben Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, yeah, yeah. There's moments in that movie where he just like his performance is so he's just so bored, he doesn't really well, want to be there. Well, we could enter
0: that whole that whole. I think it's should sort a of reshoots but,
1: probably. Is well, it? because there's, there's a lot of
0: drama that went into that, especially when they redid seventy percent of the mm-hmm. movie with uh director. Um, oh my goodness, the the male feminist, the beta male. Uh, is that and, Snyder? No, 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 no! The Avengers director, oh, uh Josh, 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 Whedon. Yeah, yes, right. that fool, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the so-called uh, self-proclaimed male feminist that couldn't help himself but just to do butt shots of Gal Gadot, yeah. sure, yeah, mm-hmm. no, but, but there's um, there's a lot of stuff that went into that, and it's not Ben Affleck's fault. So that one is yeah, totally... just
1: that's just an example. I think like Tom Cruise, like I've never seen him in a movie not be like. Pretty damn like super into it.
0: Even movies that like
1: aren't that good, um, he still kind of brings it. And... Yeah, I, I didn't watch that movie, that
0: Mummy reboot remake. Movie. I watched it. It's terrible, but again,
1: <laughs> Tom Cruise is giving it all he, he can
0: kind of get. He, he's getting. I, I, I never saw Valkyrie, the one that Brian Singer Valkyrie. directed. That was a World War II espionage movie. I think. Um, I remember that one. It wasn't. I think it was the attempt to uh, to, to murder the leader of the Third Reich, and it was based on mm-hmm. a true story. I just felt. through. It, it had a lot of production problems and things like that. Yeah. And Tom Cruise didn't even bother getting a, uh, a German accent.
1: Because so, <laughs> I mean, the, I, I remember really loving. Uh, is it called the day after tomorrow? No, the uh, the one. Edge where of tomorrow.
0: Like, edge of tomorrow.
1: The one where he dies all the time and he comes yes. back to life. Yes. Edge, yeah, edge that, that movie was great, and he was wow. He was great in it, and yeah. And I don't know how old he is, but he's like he's constantly, always bringing that kind of level. He's yeah, he's great,
0: man, and he's running his
1: butt off. Yeah, uh, I haven't, I have
0: not yet seen uh, Top Gun: Maverick. I do intend to watch it.
1: I hear uh, it's good. I hear it's really good.
0: Yeah, it's uh, dialogue is corny, but that's not what it's about. It's <laughs> about uh just yeah. entertainment, which is something that's really hard
1: to find nowadays. Another that, thing too. I heard about Maverick that it, it's a lot more practical effects, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, those jets are flying,
0: and the actors are in yeah. there using the cameras. They they had to learn cinematography. They had to do flight training and all this and that. They they were taken to different, um, um, I guess, uh, planes so they could start getting used to the G's. So that's uh, the really the really. Stepped it up from what Tony Scott did in 1986, uh, I think yeah. that's the year the no, Top Gun came out.
1: I actually just watched Top Gun, like, a few days ago for Same the here. first time. Same here. <laughs> I, I don't know if it was one of those things where, like, I'm not sure if I ever saw it before. So I just said, ah, I, I, Maverick's coming out, so might as well. And I mean, the movie still is really cheesy, but it's still pretty well made, like the, the, yeah. the uh, what do you call it, the dogfight? Scenes are still really well shot, and the cinematography is very good. Um, the shots they were able to get back then, yeah, that's pretty impressive. I, I always had this. Uh, I, I thought that Val Kilmer was in it more for some reason, but uh, and there and therein goes the point. See, yeah.
0: uh, I, last night, I as we were go to record this one, I, mm-hmm. I did the recording session for what uh, my co-host in the Critic Corner, which is exclusive locals, by the way. For those mm-hmm. interested, check out my locals community and check that out, folks, because that's where the Critic Corner Central Corner uh, off the record. That's where it all resides. But the Critic Corner, the, a particular episode that we basically rehearsed. Mm-hmm. For as long as I've known the, uh, uh, my co-host, his name is Travis, and we basically uh, every chance we get we talk about the movie Heat. And we said we're going to do Heat. the episode <laughs> Heat when the time comes. And this is a 1995 movie with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and a bunch of other uh, big name actors.
1: I, I have not seen that movie since I was a kid. So, and it's it's a masterpiece. It's, I'm sure if there's it's. A, is this yeah. a
0: perfect movie that's the one so that's mm-hmm. what we, our, our episode is about two hours um that we did and that's one of three episodes we're going to do because mm-hmm. that's just how much how deep dive we do into this into this uh, um yeah product. especially because i'm an angelino i was born and raised in los angeles uh i i remember um, my my youngest days uh, before after a kid and uh, and uh, like a uh, Infant and, and baby. Um, I was living uh, before the the one hundred and five freeway was constructed, so mm-hmm. I was at the border of Compton and Watts, and uh, the whole Ronnie King riots and all that. In the, the yeah. midst of all that, and yeah, the, the good the old fires. days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the good old days, uh, yeah. History repeats itself, uh, but yeah. So that, that's that's where I was born and raised, um, and, and seeing uh, heat. Every time I watch it, it just takes me back to the the classic Los Angeles that I grew up mm-hmm. in because it shows you all different aspects of L.A. And yeah. it's a documentary to show 10 years later how much is transformed. Like, yes, yes. And now it's even more transformed since that documentary. So there's a lot that I want to cover uh, in it. But um, I guess the reason I'm bringing that up is because when, when we were doing a recording session, I dropped the bomb on him and I said, mm-hmm. I actually just... Finally saw Top Gun. He's like, "Wait, you've never seen it before? That's a crime against what we're supposed to be." Like <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. but just like you said, I don't know if I ever actually seen the movie because yeah, yeah. it's so ingrained in our culture and it's played on TV so often. Back when I was growing up, I'm like, I know the story beats. I know everything else going to happen. I just don't remember if I ever saw a cohesive movie. Same thing with Predator. I had to sit down, like you know what? Forget. It. I need to sit down and watch this movie with my wife because I don't think I remember seeing this thing from. from that start that to start. is a
1: movie that I can tell you I've seen many, many, many times. I I, I love Predator. Um, I I do think um, something like Predator kind of gets lost in the shuffle as far as like artistry because if you think about just like the Predator design. Um, was a Stan Winston that made it yes. like there's so much thought into the Predator uh, creature. There's lore. Um, I never really got into the sequels. Uh, I don't remember the second one that much. But oh, Danny Glover? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's easy for someone to think that Predator is just like a silly movie. And, it, you know, it, it's entertaining and, and all that stuff, but it does a lot of um movie things really well um like the director John McTiernan uh that's a bad dude man like i would really suggest if anyone's like a film action film nerd watch like the audio commentary to predator but also the audio commentary to uh, die hard cuz John McTiernan did those two movies i think back to back um probably two of the greatest action movies ever and you could just hear like he knows what the hell he's talking about, mm. and uh, yeah, it, like there's one, there's one part in uh, Die Hard the audio commentary <clears throat> where um, he's breaking down. Um, there's a part where what's uh Bruce Willis's character's name in that movie? John McClane. John McClane, yeah. John McClane is he's on the phone uh, talking to the main villain, and the main villain has one of the the coworker guys, like the guy with the beard and he's trying to like strike a deal with him. And, uh, it cuts to both of them. Like, uh, John McClane's like his head's right here. And when they cut to the other guy, his head's right here. Mm. And then this guy, the, the guy doing the, the, with the beard, he gives a phone to the, uh, villain guy. And so the villain guys like, okay, so wait, let me see. so <laughs> the villain guy is right here he gives a phone to the villain guy and then they cut to John McClane since he's still on this plane like the camera turns and like all of a sudden John McClane is facing the villain and it's really well done but the the audit commentary John uh, Tiernan says something about like he did that because he wanted to give the audience a sense of uh, geography within the, di- within the conversation just little things like that are, are so underappreciated uh, in movies uh, nowadays, and,
0: yes, yeah. the art—the art—is no longer in it. That's yeah. why I, it's, and that's what uh, Travis and I get into with talking about Heat. That mm-hmm. that one is a per, the the perfect movie for mm-hmm. a lot of different things. But I'm saving that commentary because I already did it. Mm-hmm. But the point is that that very thing you're talking about is what we were dissecting to a T. Because mm-hmm. you know, and if anybody like, my, uh, that's why we both are f- from a different school of thought. That uh, Travis and I—he's a more um, classical uh, film aficionado, mm-hmm. and and I—I I would say more the Silver Age and above. That doesn't mean I don't appreciate the Golden Age. I, I do. It's just that most of the stuff yeah. that I that I really am a fan of tends to be um, from the seventies and up. So, yeah, yeah. It's, and then I, I also dissect uh, modern uh, films, but modern. Um, now, and I, and I, I use this example of this composer, Lorne Balfe, or Lorne Balfe, I can't really pronounce his uh, um, his mm-hmm. last name. A uh, cool dude, by the way. I was able to chat with him on Twitter before I torpedoed my Twitter. Um, yes. he's, he composed um, a lot uh, of – well, I don't want to say he did it a lot with Hans Zimmer, but I know he's one of his students. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that kind of broke him into mainstream was um, when he and Hans Zimmer did the, the score for uh, the Bible series for the History Channel. Mm-hmm. And when I heard the score, as someone that uh, I, I've been hearing Hans Zimmer up to twenty years to that point, I'm like, "This isn't Hans Zimmer, though. The theme sounds like it's Hans, but mm-hmm. the rest of the composition—that's not a typical thing that Hans Zimmer would do. I think this is Lauren. So then, Lauren was able to get his own. Um, Like uh, he was the lead composer in in other soundtracks, like 13 Hours. I had my beef with him because I'm like, you literally took the Prince of Egypt theme and moved this octave (laughs) down, up an octave, and you called it a new song, but that was just uh, the one song I had an issue with. Everything else, like Okay, you have a talent with the string work. So National Geographic ended up doing, um, their, I guess everybody wanted in on their, their gritty historical recreation stuff because of Game of Thrones. So National Geographic's response was, well, "Why don't we just do it on historical characters?" And they did uh, um, Genius, which is the story of Albert Einstein, and they got mm-hmm. the, the 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 act. I really like Jeffrey Rush, but the dude phoned it in for Jeffrey you know, Rush. Uh,
1: that sounds familiar. Yeah, um, you should. Is, you should know him. Is he the guy that's uh, Barbosa in the? Yes. Oh, okay, that's it. Right. Yes.
0: I'm like, dude, you phoned it in as Albert Einstein, man. It, mm-hmm. it would have been great, mm-hmm. but I didn't care. I didn't really watch it after the first episode. I just thought it was poorly made. But the musical score by Lauren Balfour, I'm going to say Balfit. I think it's called. That mm-hmm. this is what I mean about someone that understands the way uh, there's there's a classical um, uh, approach to things. But he's making a modern sound. So he's able to kind of merge the two to a contemporary classical composition where it's not sounding like the modern sound that there's no thought into it where they're just like just machine yeah. operated, they can do it and ai can make music like that no he adds texture and and flavor and it's like a tapestry of uh, of uh, music uh, mm-hmm. orchestration that he's able to do and i really appreciate that about him because not many modern composers are doing that if anything steve jablonski's copy paste han zimmer just patriotic with transformers and stuff like that but some of the but uh, it's also studio interference where they're not getting their due to be creative because if you listen to a lot of the works that these students of Hans Zimmer had done um out uh like overseas then Mm -hmm. when you get to like holy smokes where did this come from like Klaus Badal which you probably recognize best as the main composer for the score to Pirates of the Caribbean but Mm -hmm. Pirates of the Caribbean the Black Pearl had nine composers for no reason Wow. Why did you need 9? It's ridiculous. It was it was a failed uh, approach to do it because first off it wasn't supposed to be um, like a Hans Zimmer-esque sound. Alan Silvestri is the composer of go-to for Gore Verbinski. And Gore Verbinski, uh, what they both work together, Mouse Hunt and others. But this is the one mm-hmm. that they were working on together. And the original posters, even in the theaters, you would see uh, Gore Verbinski presents uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Curse of the Black Pearl. And then on the credits, you would see music by Alan Silvestri. Yeah. But because it was a Jerry Bruckheimer production, he says, I have a sound. And that specific sound goes way back before Gore Verbinski was involved. Mm -hmm. Alan Silvestri is not my sound. Alan Silvestri is a classically trained composer. So his sound, he could do it. He's a chameleon composer. But no, Mm -hmm. threw him out. Instead, bring in Hans Zimmer. Hans says, yo, man, I'm busy. Here's one of my students. Klaus Badach. And when I say students, there's a reason. Because it was Hans Zimmer after backdraft because it was rain rain man mm. was the one that kind of put him into the frame not to mention days of mm. thunder but um it was backdraft that was like well, with uh um uh, ron howard uh that that really cemented okay. his sound because it was towards the end of the 80s and say like, and in the early 90s like dude your your syn- your synthesized scores are not what they used to be like in the 70s you have a good modern synth sound so yeah. more people wanted that and as and as hans knew like this is going to be a thing he and his friend uh, i think they're both german uh, um nick lenny smith they ended up creating this uh this uh i guess music school or music academy called a mm-hmm. uh, radio uh, um uh it was called Radio Something before later on they turned into Media Ventures. When it turned into Media Ventures, there was a bunch of other composers that came out of that uh, of that school. The w- graduates, just to name a few, John Powell, Harry Gerson Williams, Trevor Rabin, yes and no. Uh, Mark Mancia has a, a little bit of that sound too. Mm-hmm. Um, but then later on would be the, 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 the later generation would be uh, Steve Jablonski, then Lauren Balfour, Klaus Badal. So these are names that have come out from these school of thoughts. Some of these guys yeah. had found their own voice have done something great john powell his masterworks are uh um how to change your dragon harry Griffin williams i think uh really underappreciated but holy smokes listen the kingdom of heaven one of my top 10 favorite of all times or even narnia which has some elements of of greatness in it too and then his i think it's his brother rupert Griffin williams is another one that, that basically comes out of that uh, most of the rest of them didn't didn't find their own voice they were just hans zimmer 2.0 Steve Jablonski is one of them. But I think that's a lot to do with the influence of studios too when they said, do the Hans Zimmer sound because you know it best. But if you hear uh, Steam Boy by, uh, by Steve Jablonski an anime movie, there's elements of greatness there. But Klaus mm-hmm. Badal, he did a, a score for a Chinese movie called The Promise. And that one is one of my top 10 favorite soundtracks of all time because the Chinese National Orchestra gives it their all and they bring it and mm-hmm. it's really hard to find a composition of original music like that nowadays. And over there in China was so big that even TV shows that were so popular, they were they're just like just cloned the music that Claus did. And when I told my wife, who's Taiwanese, by the way, I told her, this was composed by a German composer. It's like, "This Chinese music was done by a German mm-hmm. composer. She, did, she couldn't believe it. And yeah. I showed her, like, there it is." So these guys can do greatness when they're given a chance. And this is how it kind of all ties with this whole thing about where's the creativity going on? How yeah. much is it an influence of, of uh, the, the commercial pro, uh, like studio controlling the artist? And how much is the artist just becoming more tired? And like, you know, what, I want to change it up a bit mm-hmm. and eating it in some of the fan base. Because uh, I see it play out all these aspects of things. That's not even counting wokeness.
1: How do you feel to, to, I guess, to kind of go with the soundtrack thing? How do you feel about like original? Because, um, like, when Ray Liotta died last week, um, I had to watch Goodfellas just in memory of him. And mm-hmm. that soundtrack is purely just, you know, uh, existing songs. Um, but that movie does it in such a way where, like, it helps tell the story. Um, how do you feel about, like, those kind of soundtracks compared to OST's? Well,
0: when we come to a compilation
1: albums and mm-hmm. then original score,
0: so long as it's the director that knows what he's doing and what he wants, that's cool. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is when they bring a composer and said, hey, I want you to compliment the music, I mean, mm-hmm. the, 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 the pictures with your music. Yeah. If you know who they are, you know what kind of sound they have, and then you throw it away. Mm-hmm. that's what i hate because if you know you're going to use a compilation album not just to do temp tracks which are temporary tracks that are the editors use so uh when uh, this is like behind this is media aesthetics folks so um this might sound like very technical it's because it is so after a film is shot especially when it's filmed this is before the digital age so this is even harder they're shooting in film there will be something called a uh um oh, oh my goodness it's not a taping session. It's, an, it's like a, a, a note session where mm-hmm. the the this uh, the, the guy holding the reels would sit down with um, with the director and say, "Where do you want the cut?" And they mm-hmm. would tape it. Like this is where the tape's going to go because it's where the cut's going to happen. They're just mm-hmm. taping it. They're not cutting yet. They're just gonna tape it. It's so, like, okay, so these are the cuts, and they're gonna make they're gonna make all these things. So how do they know where they want to make the cut? Especially if they have a scene, and they wanna they wanna switch this and that. Like okay, well we need a temporary track, or also known as a temp track. Temp track being that let's take an existing musical cue and let's go to the beats of the song, and we're mm-hmm. gonna cut to that. Sometimes those temporary or temp tracks have uh, their whoever's working on this because they're constantly working just with that, they get so enamored with that that sometimes they'll have a composer come in and say, I want you to write original music, but I want you to use this song. Like, so you mm-hmm. want me to write original music or do you want me to use that song? Well, I want you to write your music to the song. And yeah. in a, a great example would be uh, the aforementioned Kingdom of Heaven. Kingdom of Heaven, really Scott, uh, this was after uh, – um,
1: he that was sounds that familiar. Movie. Is that with uh, Orlando Bloom? Oh, that movie. Yeah, I've never seen that.
0: Yeah, yeah. That uh, watch the director's cut only. The theatrical cut was a was a, a massacre of art. It was just like, dude, where's the story? There's they left two hours on the cutting room floor. Uh, really? So, and, and even when they fill it in, I think Orlando Bloom was just uh, they were riding right the high of his popularity because of Lego loss and then coming out as Will Turner in Parts mm-hmm. of the Caribbean. It's like, hey, you know what? You can handle your own vehicle. No, just like Eric Bana. These guys are better at supporting actors. They they complement yeah. an ensemble. They can't hold a thing on their own. But the, the spectacle that is uh, Kingdom of Heaven after after having like Gladiator, Hannibal, Black Hawk Down, like all of that, just like in, in, in a row for um, for Ridley Scott, and then doing Kingdom of Heaven, which is has some of the most incredible scenes, particularly during the Crusades that I have ever mm-hmm. seen. Hans Zimmer was too busy to do the music. He did the music for the previous three. But he's like, hey, man, I'm busy. He's one of my friends, one of my former students, Harry Gregson Williams. Harry Gregson Williams writes arguably the greatest soundtrack since Lord of the Rings. And I mean since because this dude wrote hours. I have all the recording sessions to this one, all the recording music sessions of this. This is like five hours worth of music. And it's astounding what he was able to do in getting the christian sound which it's not christian it's catholicism but whatever for lack of a description we'll say that and then there's um the uh, the middle eastern sound and there are jewish themes uh, or influences in it too mm-hmm. but the best part is that he's he's created all these rich themes and technically he clashes them all together because that, mm-hmm. it, there's a war and the way he handles it it's really hard to duplicate that again because Harry hasn't done it again. Mm. Narnia would be the closest thing, and that's barely making it there. It's barely scratching the surface. So there is a musical cue. It's called Rise of Night, and it's in the original soundtrack that you can buy at the store, so it's not something that is such a recording. It's on the original soundtrack. It's called Rise of Night. You can listen to that song and then ask yourself, where is this song in the movie? If you watch the two-and-a-half-hour version and then you watch the four-hour-plus, you're not gonna find it there, because for the final cut, Ridley Scott, the temp track that he used was from uh, the Crow, the uh, Crow yeah. Three by Michael Baltraffi, and I think it was called Dead Man Walking, and he ends up uh, putting that song in there, uh-huh. and he does do the same thing. Well, uh, that wasn't for that one. I'm sorry. That's the, that's for later. Uh, that's when the walls come down of Jerusalem. the the The, the Rise and Night song was Valhalla. A, 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 a motive piece that Jerry Goldsmith did for the 13th Warrior um, about uh, a few years prior uh, before um, Jerry Goldsmith passed away. So there's two tracks that were the temp tracks that make the final cut of the film yeah. that was not by Harry Williams, but he was told to write the, some of this music to the temp track. So you, if you run in parallel, you can see the story beats, but Harry still writes his own sound. to the beats but even then it's not used so that these things tend to happen so if like quentin tarantino uh if i remember correctly his thing was he used compilation albums like Mm -hmm. music because he did not want someone else to tell him what's best for him yeah that's why it was great that after so working so much that he and he was able to work with ennio morricone with uh, the hateful eight, mm-hmm. because they tried working together, and mm-hmm. Ennio Morricone hated Quentin Tarantino's stuff, and that hurt him. But they he hated still- his uh, he hated
1: his movies, or just uh, his uh, taste yeah, I of think,
0: music. I, I no, I think it was both his his movies and um, his approach, because he never mm-hmm. used score. And I think okay. that they were able to uh, to get past the the animosity there to be able right. to work together for the hateful eight, and that was the only original score um award for ennio morricone mm-hmm. which is a crime against art the most prolific composer yeah. in history Not john williams probably has done half of what ennio morricone has done this dude only won one academy award bull crap okay. <laughs> yeah I'm
1: he's a ennio morricone he's pretty known in like the record collecting uh field so yeah i know i know by ennio um
0: yeah, I, I was supposed to go to one of his concerts. My wife was excited. We're going to go to a concert um, because uh, a of a pal who's a violinist who's friends with the son, and mm-hmm. and uh, the um, the the concert was was delayed and ultimately canceled. And I, what happened? We're going to go, and I happened to mention it to, to my buddy. <clears throat> He's a violinist, and he, he told me, um, and you know, fell in the shower. I'm like, no. When they're wow. that old, you know <laughs> what that means. Yeah. yeah, he never he never really recovered from that. So that, that was something. That sucks, man. So uh, that, that's all to say. Um, like, see, I, I can really go off on, on all this stuff when it comes to uh, like where the creative process works and where it doesn't because the, when a film is cut, and before they used classical music because they didn't have anything else. That's why there's – that's why classical composers hate film composers because the mm-hmm. film music composers, like, you guys are just copying our work and you guys do a poor yeah. job at it. Uh, that's why they don't respect each other. There's there's a, there's a gap in between. Um, there have been composers for music that have tried to – uh, write classical music. When John Williams, who's very popular in the seventies and eighties with all his big bombastic themes on Academy Awards, he tried his hand at classical music. He failed miserably. He was <laughs> laughed out of of like the the, the, the concert halls. It's like yeah. you wrote a freaking a uh, film music and try to pass it off as as a, as a classical music. You screwed yeah. it up. Uh, th- someone that took a different trajectory, and even recently, another composer did the same. Danny Elfman. Was part of a of, of a punk band, if I'm not mistaken, and when he was picked up by Tim Burton to do music, and they did Beetlejuice, and eventually uh, uh, Batman, 1989. And you want to talk about Batman, so that's going to circle around yeah. here. But um, he didn't. He was trying to break into film score. Like, mm-hmm. why? Do you, why do you? How do you go from pop to go to this? Whatever it was, like a passion of his. To, he mm-hmm. was testing himself and his abilities to be able to do it. So when he did Batman. And he said he spent weeks and he wrote, I wrote so much music. And when I was done, I only had 56 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> he only knew one of the clefts. I don't remember which one it was, if it was the treble clef or the bass cleft that he knew how to write for. He didn't know mm-hmm. how to write for the other one, which is why Batman doesn't really have much of a percussion in it when you re-listen to it. It's more like high-pitched sounds because he didn't know how to fill it in entirely. He had help to get it done. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, and eventually, mature, he found his sound, and it was just working so well. In the early 2000s, he wanted to push himself again. He decided to write classical music.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: unlike John Williams, Danny Elfman succeeded. Wow. And it was a standing ovation. He was only performed once in New York. And I don't. I think it was like two hours. But you can actually buy the comp, uh, the the um, the recording, uh, the album. You can buy the recording, but less than an hour. The performance itself was about two hours. Though. Okay. So there's a lot that was that was not there. And it was a standing ovation. I don't remember how long they gave it to him for, but it was outstanding. And I'm like, you did it right, man. And when I heard mm-hmm. it, and I played it for my wife recently too. I was like, honey, this is my favorite modern classical music. It's like, what it makes it modern? Just listen to it. And you'll realize that this is not this is not film score. He did it. Yeah. An, a, the, a, another composer that's doing the same thing along those same lines was James Newton Howard, and I got to talk to him about that because I, I asked him how was it uh, for you when doing working with M. Night Shyamalan to then the uh, end up doing this. You no, know? yeah. Um, so anyway, that's a, that's a whole other thing, but <laughs> it's interesting to see just how yeah. much changes because considerably the greatest. Music composer of a uh, film com- film composer of all time is Erich errich Wolfgang Korngold. He did about eight soundtracks, I think, um, if you call it that. But this is a dude that will lock himself in with uh, the projector, sit at his piano, and just start writing music out. And was considered the greatest original score, but it's not the best for everybody. But yeah. was considered the greatest because the tapestry that's weaved into the imagery is. The Adventures of Robin Hood, and it has a rousing theme. He's got a choir in there, and my is that uh, my, huh, is that the uh, Kevin Costner Robin Hood or no? no we're talking about nineteen thirty something. This is uh, ah, okay, Earl, okay. Earl the, the big, the big adventure actor from back then right, um, right. that played Robin Hood. So this is we're talking about way back when. Okay, mm-hmm. black and white days. My favorite score by uh, Wolfgang Kornel is. Um, uh, Oh, my goodness. The Seahawk. The Seahawk is a pirate song. When you first hear the song, you're like, whoa, man, this is amazing. (laughs) And the next thing you know, George Lucas, who loved that song too, grew up listening to it, told John Williams, hey, can you write something like that? And he's like, well, I'll try. And then you get the Star Wars theme. So this is all connected, and you can thank Wolfgang Korngold. So that's what I mean, like, if you let them be creative and do it. That's great because the first part of a movie budget that goes out the window is the original score. That's mm-hmm. the one that studios always compromise on. Oh, we'll just bring in one of those cookie cutter guys. Yeah.
1: and it sucks. And that's different from wokeness. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just thinking like right now like' it's, it's how uh, how much the soundtrack actually does make a movie because uh, if you compare uh, Mad Max to the Road Warrior. To Mad Max Three, what is it? Beyond Thunderdome. Thunderdome. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, what really like sets those movies apart really is is the soundtrack. It's, Road Warrior has a really like uh, a kind of a timeless soundtrack. It's a great soundtrack, but Beyond Thunderdome has a very eighties sound to it, and it just dates the movie terribly. Mm. And uh, yeah, so it is it is really important. You know, uh, like, how do you feel about like, um, what's his name? I think Junkie XL, I think his name is. Yeah. Tom, uh, Tom Holden something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because, well, that's was, another one. I thought that was Hans was, Zimmer.
1: Who was the guy that, who was the person that made the, the soundtrack for Interstellar? Was it Junkie XL or no, Hans Zimmer? No, that guy? was Hans Zimmer. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that soundtrack is pretty, pretty damn awesome.
0: So, the, so for Hans Zimmer, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to, three scores I'm going to name. And it looks like we're focusing a lot on this. And <laughs> we're not we might not be able to touch on wokeness as I seen the, the clock, goes, but it's okay because this is this is great because it also speaks to the uh, wokeness, like you said, was not the death of creativity. It was the hijacking of creativity. Mm-hmm. Whereas the death of creativity has been already in place. And some of us, some of us are at fault because we will support the things that are like, Oh, why are you still watching another Fast and Furious movie? Oh, because you know it's fun. See, that's why they keep making that crap. Instead of actually supporting the movies that we should support, you know, Um, and then we complain that it's the same thing over and over again, then stop paying to watch
1: it. So, when it comes, I mean, something like a Fast and Furious series, like it's fun. I don't mind something being made for fun. Uh, It's just when uh, I don't know if we're gonna have enough time to uh, to talk about this, but just it's when um, art kind of gets away from the fun factor and starts to like take itself too seriously and kind of up its own ass that's that's when the wokeness i think kind of comes in and just and i think that's also the fault of the fast and furious
0: because it just remember the Mm -hmm. street the street races were the thing and some of them were practical and now we're just cgi bloated mess with guys flying (laughs) flying tanks or whatever the heck it is so that's what that's what i mean um yeah i got you i got you so when it comes to, like, uh, tie it back to Hans Zimmer and the three scores I'm going to refer to. In, in reverse order, that would be Interstellar, mm-hmm. um, the one oh, that 3 scores, huh? Yeah. But there's Thin Red Line before that. And then it's going to to be, oh, yeah, and it, there's one right, right in between. Um, this is a, a big deal because Hans Zimmer, who I had just established, was the synth sound. He brought back the 70s sound that went out the window because mm-hmm. – um the, that that tremble, synthetic sound that that basically uh, um, uh, made classical scores uh, extinct were brought yeah. back by John Williams single-handedly with Star Wars, Superman, and Indiana Jones, and then eventually E.T. And not to, not to forget Jaws, but Jaws wasn't really a, a full-thought-out yeah. score like those, right? So then everybody wanted in on the 80s. So 80s, we had James Horner. Uh, we had Alan Silvestri, Back to the Future. Anything from James Horner, like even Aliens was the Land four time, one of my favorite James Horner scores of all time. We've been end-capping yeah. it with Willow. Not to mention John Williams owned the 80s, too. And yeah. Basil Poladoris with Conan the Barbarian because Arnold was in everything then. So you have these big old scores, And then Hans Zimmer breaks back in and then makes the synth sound cool again. It's like, dude, you're really good. Um, He didn't just rest on his laurels, though. He kept pushing himself. So in Mm -hmm. 1998, he worked with Terrence Malick and wrote The Thin Red Line, the completely anti Hans Zimmer soundtrack. Mm -hmm. It is basically a quartet with occasional. French horns and trumpets in it. Yeah. He went all organic in it. And it's his masterpiece. The Thin Red Line is my favorite Hans Zimmer score of all time. I have his eight hours of recording sessions because mm-hmm. I wanted to hear every variation that he did on those songs. It has one of the best songs ever. But because the movie didn't do well at the box office and it was very artsy, fartsy for a lot of people that don't really like it. Like, oh, why is half of the movie about trees? Well, blame Terrence Manic for that. <laughs> so the, the fact that a lot of the music even got chopped up, Hans Zimmer said the only Academy Award that's hurt that he didn't win was that one. Because he doesn't want to work mm. with the director ever again. And he devoted so much to that. And it kept changing because Terrence Manic is notorious for not having storyboards. He storyboards in the editing room. So when he's editing, oh, I'm changing it <laughs> again, changing it again, the movie that was probably planned is not the one that's that, that's that's pushed out. Yeah. So when you have that kind of, like, indecision and Hans being, that's why he did so many variations of a song and mm-hmm. to be left holding the bag. And the original score album only has about 50 minutes of music. It's a crime that people were robbed from listening to Hans Zimmer's greatest soundtrack. And all you got to do is pull up one song, Journey to the Line. That's it. Right there, it's all there. So Mm -hmm. when I say that Interstellar is his best score since the Thin Red Line, I used to call it Thin Red Line in space, but instead of heavy strings, he went with the organ. Not just any organ. One of the biggest organs in the world. And that's how he was able to fill that sound. And I said, this works. And it's signature Hans. But he kept maturing along the way because Mm -hmm. in between those movies, I told you Klaus Badot was the head composer for Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse, uh, the Curse of the Black Pearl. Eight more composers came in from that school to try to fix the score. So you have the album. Yeah. Pull it out. Look at the liner notes and look at every single freaking composer that was involved in it. The last name, Hans Zimmer. He went in there. He fixed it. I don't even know what he ended up fixing. All he did was basically throw in the, the gladiator cool theme or, or the, 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 the action multi only uses like two or three times in the entire score and just moves yeah. one octave to the other side and calls it the parts of the caribbean thing and it's like the jack sparrow thing like this is pathetic whatever the point is it worked for the studio so next time they said we don't want that screw up again you come back and do dead man's chest and when he did dead man's chest it's like well you suck at making pirate music it's like why because this doesn't sound like a swashbuck- buckling adventure. So then At World's End was the first time he used, as far as I know, he used wood instruments, not synth instruments, to yeah. fill the sound. So At World's End is his most orchestral, organic accomplishment. Mm-hmm. It's the most mature Han sound there is. That's why he's really transformed a lot in that sense where compulsors can push themselves and he's still pushing himself and people are still trying to copy him where he can't write something new without someone stealing it. Like, like what happened with inception 10 years of commercials and still Mm -hmm. we, we can't get away from that sound. (laughs) Yeah. And that's all Hans. So I I love creativity, but, uh, but Hans, I feel people should let him rest. It's like, stop asking him to do this, uh, something new just for everybody else to copy him. I want the Justin Horowitz of the world to come out and do more, like he did with La La Land. Like, dude, that was awesome. And then he goes to do First Man, and he basically resurrects an old instrument that's been extinct for like 50 years, the tir- uh, Timurant, and makes a new sound with it, and it worked. Yeah. Like, it's It's just that people don't give them their due. That's why it's so hard to find a good modern score. Mm -hmm. For that, you got to go to TV or video games.
1: Yeah. um, But also, I think there is something about like when uh, some kind of a sound or art becomes big. Like there is a – everyone kind of jumps on that trend and it's hard to kind of get around that. Um, I want to toss this over to you though because
0: um, this is something that always fascinated you. And you you bought that the Black Eyed Peas becoming just like the standard other sound out there that like you guys are yeah. like the other type that you're not who you used to be. But when other people try to copy sound and try not are not being original, mm-hmm. um, do you feel it's harder for the next artist because they
1: cannot uh, exercise to the a,
0: creativity? To, to be, be original,
1: original. or yeah. – it's kind of hard to say because it's like – like, the hip-hop music I, I love is mostly, like, sample-based music. So, mm-hmm. like, they are taking, you know, to the T, like, they are taking music that exists and making something new. So, like, as long as it's done with love and you're still trying to push the envelope in some way, that's great, but, I don't know, it's, it's hard to be... Uh, like super original nowadays, because even when I try to like, if I just like have, if I just say I'm gonna make something super original, I try to I start and it just ends up looking like something I just I've already done. So hmm. it's 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 something that's just hard to avoid. But uh, as long as you, I think as long as there's a like a genuine effort that was put into it, then I it does sort of show. You know what I mean? Well, and I think,
0: I, and I, I would like to answer. Well, I I'd like to respond to that with. But mm-hmm. I want to ask
1: you, what was that Batman question you wanted to ask me? Because I think this might my oh. all time together. Uh well, my Batman question. It's a movie, Batman movie related question. And mm-hmm. what is, in your opinion, the best non Joker related Batman movie? Okay, so that's why I'm,
0: I'm glad. I'm glad you asked that because i the fans like me mm-hmm. we were upset that they were basically shoehorning in joker for even this latest batman movie
1: like, yeah that was weird
0: why batman has the greatest rogues gallery why don't we take time to explore the other uh the other villains yeah and i you said non-joker um but joker is kind of in it anyway it's really hard to point to uh, in that sense because uh, the one I have a bias towards is actually not a movie many people have seen. But um, if I'm going to have to pick one, then it's going to be Batman Returns, hands down. That is probably the Returns. most Batman movie ever mm-hmm. because it's it's dark. It's not uh, inspiring in any way. There's grandiose moments, big action pieces. Mm-hmm. Batman kills folks. And the, and the, the score is phenomenal by Danny Elfman. The direction is, is excellent yeah. by Tim Burton. And it is horrifying too. Um, it, it doesn't mince uh, its detail. But I think the a movie that even trends social commentary because it, it made political and social commentary at the time mm-hmm. is the film adaptation of the, the novel uh, The Dark Knight Returns. It was made into two parts in an animated uh, series.
1: Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, I saw that.
0: That is phenomenal, and I'm so glad. And I, I'm, and that's what I wanted to bring this up because uh, I want to end on a note that's uh, that affects this. Wait, Joker is in that, but I... <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah. But he's not the main guy. He just, yeah. he just happens to be there. Mm-hmm. But. but it's, it's a predominantly a Batman driven story mm-hmm. set in the at the height of the, of the Cold War or the end of the Cold War between the two superpowers of the United States and, and the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, and it just happens to be that these characters live in those times, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that made great, uh, a great use of its time mm-hmm. and commentary like like we're focusing too much on outside and not looking at what's happening inside. Mm-hmm. That whole story, is playing out before our very eyes in our country right now. It yeah. is amazing how that movie along with Watchmen are being played out right now, right before our eyes. Life literally imitates art. Yeah. But um it's I'm trying to remember that uh um that other piece though. There was a there was a thought that um I, I wanted to finish. Oh, the, the <clears throat> originality. So when I watched the Batman,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the Robert Pattinson. Um, everybody that that did enjoy it that I know said, oh man, that was almost as good as The Dark Knight. Like, dude, first off, they're not the same movie. And secondly, no, you're crazy. And <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but the thing is, just at The Dark Knight, which is the, the standard for comic book movies, I watched both The Batman and The Dark Knight, and I'm like, you guys were really inspired by the movie Heat. I can tell. <laughs> and... I end up talking about that in that uh, epic episode I'm talking about because there were a lot of things that felt like, and like you said, it's hard to be original. There's a way to do a callback and make your mm-hmm. own thing, but you all, but there's also examples of someone has done it before and done it right. Yeah, and where the Batman lacks it, Heat excelled at it. Like they, oh, Gotham is a character in the movie The Batman. Yes, but you have no idea of the the sheer size of the city, where things are in the city. What proximity is to a city? What buildings are in this city? You get none of that. And uh, you do get it in heat because Los Angeles and this and that. So I, there's still things that people can do, mm-hmm. like uh, with a tired trope, like uh, the Jack Reacher story, for example. Um, forget the movies, watch the Prime show starring Alan Richson. It was so well done. And it it, uh, it does subvert your expectations a little. Mm-hmm. Like, you can still accomplish something even with the tired trope, see? Yeah. But and I, I want to tie this all up with this, and I'm going to toss it to you because uh, we had this conversation a little bit before, you know, the other times we talked. So, wokeness is going to be to be continued. But <sighs> there was a moment uh, in, in what's transpiring with certain properties that are they're in one medium and then they're trying to be that is with different medium so let's say a comic book being made into a movie Mm -hmm. or a novel being made into a movie but then there's a pressure to please the public because they they start gauging the response that the audience had to the to the story as as a cohesive whole
1: yeah
0: and sometimes the studio will say let's change the ending so it can fit for, uh, like, it, it'll be better for general audiences. How do you feel when a studio
1: does that? It, it's really hard to say, because, like, let's go back to Lord of the Rings. Uh, Lord of the Rings has been a property that was considered pretty much unfilmable, because no one know, knew how to really do it. And, um, you know, it, it just as long. I don't know how, I, like, I've never read the Lord of the Rings books So I don't know how closely related they are, but I know there are different enough in a way that it makes, it translates to film really well. Like Lord of the Rings movies are just pretty awesome. Um, So like anytime you like you, you take something that was made into like, like you said, it was a book and turn into a, a movie. You do have to make those kind of changes to make it work for film. Because um, I think I've heard, I've heard someone would do the quote of like some of the best written scripts don't make the best movies. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, it, it, like storytelling in different forms, like you do have to make those changes. So it, it's it's kind of hard to say, man.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean that's um, I I bring up Watchmen because that was. The main criticism that the critics, not the fans of the book, the the critics of the film, said, the movie doesn't work because it was faithful to the novel, mm-hmm. and the fans of the of Watchmen, the novel, say the movie doesn't work because it wasn't faithful to the novel. Mm-hmm. So yeah, someone's you're, you're... right, someone's wrong. Yeah,
1: it's like I I, I never try to. Um like, judge something like that. Like, if they turned a book that I love, like, let's say, like, I love 1984, and they made it into a movie, I always try to, like, just judge the movie on its own basis, not totally compare it to the book, because, you know, they skip that one part where he talks about this, that's bullshit, and I don't know, it's kind of hard to, uh, you you don't want to end up to be that nitpicky, but, again, (laughs) I understand, like, I understand the fandom's um, obsession for something being left alone. Um, like if you you know, think about Star Wars. Like that that could have been just left alone and people would have loved it, but they had to make it and change it for the times. And now it's just god awful. So well, and the, and you just highlighted two differences. In one, where
0: they're trying to. To please general audiences, and I'll use Watchmen again as an example, mm-hmm. where they said the ending was too controversial for the book, so we're just mm-hmm. going to change it. No, you made it worse because the ending worked. The it was what the author intended, because mm-hmm. the way the ending was changed is. But the means to the end are the same. But the ending is different for yeah. Watchmen for the film because it takes away what is literally symmetrical for the novel itself because the novel was written in a way and drawn in a way, penciled and colored, mm-hmm. where for a particular palette, it's symmetrical in of it itself, which is pretty awesome On some of the panels kind of fold over themselves. Yeah. So uh, that means the beginning and the end had to come together. And for the film, it doesn't work. So that's why Like I still appreciate what Zack Snyder was able to do. It just <clears throat> didn't stick the landing. But then you have studios trying to say, we need to adapt to the times. No, not when it's a fantasy <laughs> thing and because now you're using it as a platform to preach
1: at people. And but also like it, it does take the right, uh, people to do that. Cause you know, you look at the shiny movie compared to the shiny book, it's completely different. And, mm. um, I believe even, uh, like, uh, what's his, uh, Stephen King, King hated the movie. Yeah. I think he originally hated it. And <clears> there's <throat> even, um, there's even a scene in the movie, uh, Cause in the book, I think they drive in the book, they drive like a red car, but in the movie it's yellow or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there's a deliberate like fuck you to, um, like Stanley Kerouac does like a deliberate fuck you to Stephen King <laughs> where, um, when, uh, Holleran, I think that the, the black guy that gets killed, he's driving in like a snowstorm and there's a car accident and the car that's involved in the accident is the red car from the movie. <laughs> um, but, you know, you look at The Shining movie, like, if I was someone who was so uh, tied to the book, like, I would probably hate the movie, but I judge the movie on its own basin and it's, you know, it's it's a classic. Um, I think even, uh, like, uh, Stephen King actually made his own adaption of uh, The Shining. He did, like, a miniseries, and it's faithful as all hell to the book, but it's horrendous. It's terrible. Mm. Uh, I don't know if I, I don't recommend anyone watch it because it's that bad. Uh, it even it has like a like a a Goosebumps cheesy mm. feel to it, um, but but not as good as Goosebumps. <laughs> no, 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 not not even. <laughs> <You> know, so <laughs> The Shining is a rare case where like that's forgivable. Like as long as it's done by the right people and yeah, you know, Stanley Kubrick, you know, he knows what the hell he's doing. Um. And he's changing the story like a whole lot because I like I think even the maze isn't in the book. Mm. Um, there's a lot of shit in the in the story that in the movie that's completely different. But you know, just on its own, it works. But the film the, the miniseries adaptation of the Shining book, is just horrendous. So there is there is something about like making something work for film versus keeping it completely tied to the book. It's, it's, it's hard to say like where the balance is, you know what I mean? Cause I know people that like, uh, love Jurassic Park, uh, the book, but like, don't really like, they like the movie, but they say like the book is so much better. Blah, blah, yeah. blah.
0: Technically they always say this book. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> but you know, I love the movie and you know, I've never read, read the book, but you know, I just judged the movie on its own basis, and yeah. I, I, it, the movie very much works. The sequels don't, you know. But, what uh, sequels? I
0: don't. I do even know the
1: sequels. Like I said, <laughs> it's so awful. But even like a uh, the 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 Lost World, the sequel directly after uh, Jurassic Park is just. I remember liking it when I was a kid, and then I saw mm-hmm. it as an adult, and I just I almost fell asleep. I was just so bored. It's not good.
0: Yeah, there's some moments that were pretty cool for, like, action set pieces, but other than that, it's like,
1: why, though? After, like, the big, like, oh, God, no, is, uh, there's that part where, like, uh, Jeff Goldblum's black daughter, she, like, she does, like, a fucking uh, gymnastics Gymnastics. move to kill a velociraptor or something, and, like, that, that, as an adult, I saw that, and I was like, oh, God, no. I can't believe I thought this was good. <laughs>
0: oh my God. The things we enjoy as kids that we, we can't, when we yeah, that, we, yeah. Yeah. Now I, and I, I always think that yes, mediums are different. You can do something yeah. in a novel that you can't do when it comes to uh, filming. If you were to film, the actual moment in a novel where the character is having a crash of consciousness and it's mm-hmm. going on for an entire chapter and he's literally only standing at the door about to open it. You yeah. cannot do that for film. So, yes, there are differences in the medium. There are ways to be faithful mm-hmm. to an extent um, while still being uh, like, uh, like your own thing. Um, it's just a matter of like if you're going to – it's different when it comes to graphic novels or comic books and things like that because yeah, yeah. they're kind of still pictures of cartoons. Yeah. So it's you already have an expectation of what you want to see. So I mm-hmm. think it's to each their own on what they're doing because even the same team that adapted the Dark Knight Returns for um, Warner Bros. Animation. They royally screwed it up with my all-time favorite novel, The Long Halloween, and I yeah. knew they were going to do that. I'm like, screw this! I'm not. I don't want any part in this. So this is where uh, I guess this is where we'll we'll have to want we'll to wrap it. But before anything else, I want to give a shout out because you probably haven't seen it. I recommend everybody to go check out a, f- a fan film of Batman, and it's it was done about a month ago. Now uh, I've been in touch with the creator. And I did invite him onto the program. He's down right now. He's really busy. But if he does Mm -hmm. come on, um, I'll let other people know to chime in with the questions. This is how you're able to take an existing property with characters that are some more obscure and some that are well-known and do a uh, 15-minute fan-animated movie Mm -hmm. and have it be better than a $200, $300 million movie that went on for three hours and did it and had it, it had its issues. There's some great moments in the Batman, but there are parts where we're like, What is this movie trying to be? Then you have this dude with heart and passion and love for the character that in 15 minutes of screen time and animation, love and care, hits it out of the park.
1: I yeah, it. it's beautiful. There is something about like, um, it is important for the people to make the pro make the product to be genuine fans of that product because it does show. Um Because I, I think – didn't you tweet something about the, the Star Wars movies? Like they're just made by people that don't like Star Wars. They're made by people who have never seen Star Wars or don't appreciate Star Wars. Yeah, I mean like Star Wars – Star Wars works if it's made by people who just genuinely love Star Wars. Um, and, the, and the people
0: that are doing so now don't. That's like Halo – the people that the team that created Halo they admit they never played the game Halo, yeah. they don't know anything about Halo. They just know there's a guy named Master Chief that wears the helmet and takes it off. He <laughs> never takes off the helmet, yeah. It's
1: like they don't know what the hell they were doing. And it's weird because like people want good Star Wars. Like, I don't know, did you do you play video games or no? I used to, yes, we yeah. Because the uh, I, I wouldn't, I'm not sure if it's the last Star Wars game, but there was a Star Wars game that came out like a two three years ago called like fall in order or something like that. And mm-hmm. yeah, they got a good like great response because it was made by people that just you could tell it was just made by people who love Star Wars and it shows cuz the game is very entertaining. It's a great game. Like it's just a fun game. I, mm. Star Wars works if it's like gritty but still just fun. It doesn't work if if it's trying to preach, you know. Uh, and that's feminism. what they're...
0: But that's what they're yeah. doing. Intersectional feminism taking the established characters and and just breaking them down because you have to destroy the main character to prop up the female. No, that's that's not what you do. And but did we forget about Leia? She existed yeah. in this world. What about Sarah Connor before, the, uh, like after that, or even Ellen Ripley? It's like they never existed before. Said like, no, yeah, the, we have the,
1: the, the female hero thing is it's kind of weird because like Ellen Ripley works because she came out in a time in the eighties is it? yeah. The eighties when like the actual, the typical action star was like the honor source type. So her, like she's a rarity and it like it, there's a surprise element there, but now since like every movie has to have like the kick-ass female, like there's no surprise element and it's just, it's almost like expected like you, you could just watch a trailer now and there's like the sassy you know woman you could just you just know that scene's gonna come on the movie where mm-hmm. you know she pushes the guy aside to like let me handle this and she just kicks like ten guys' asses with that's no DVD effort right now you know what I mean yeah. and like again like if if that's a rare occasion then that works because there's a surprise element but there's no surprise element like it, yeah it's kind of like expected now. Yeah. So, and then the male character saying, "You're amazing." Yeah, or he's like drunk, or what? Well, like, and like that, uh, what was it? The last uh, was it the last Avengers movie where they made like Thor like a drunken buffoon or something like that? Was it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, like. Or yeah, or
1: yeah, like I fucking hated yeah. that. Like.
0: Well, you're gonna to hit it great. even more because uh, no, I do not believe Natalie Portman actually bulked up uh, to get those arms for Love and Thunder. She's yeah. the Mighty Thor, uh, apparently the better Thor. Yeah, so I, I think
1: been... I think Marvel movies are kind of done, honestly,
0: because. Which... Which is why people appreciated the Batman, because, like, wait, the movie ended and we didn't have a Skybeam or a CGI alien army battling it out? You yeah, know, yeah. We yeah. didn't get any of that? It's like, no,
1: you actually got Batman kicking butt the way he's supposed to. Yeah. I also think that, like, uh, the end game, like the Marvels, like, it's sort of a pinnacle in movies to the point where, like, it was so big a movie that, like, it, it kind of, I don't know, like, if, I wish movies were smaller in scale now, because. I don't want everything to be fucking Avatar and they this world of CGI. There's all, like, I miss movies that were just a little bit more grounded. Um, not, not necessarily like I'm on like more realistic because I still love fantasy, but
0: yeah. it just feels like
1: things are just so CGI fest grandiose that it just, like, I didn't even see the last, uh, what was it? Doctor Strange movie. And I, I know it was made by Sam Raimi and I love Sam Raimi. But just looking at the trailers, it just looks so like so, it so looks so huge and grandiose. It's Like, no, you want to like save that for big moments. You don't want every movie to be that. It, it just it it takes it takes away so so much fun.
0: Yeah, that's why Marvel's done for. They've been done for uh, for a while. But um, like I always say that my favorite director is Christopher Nolan, and my mm-hmm. favorite film by him is Interstellar. But the the last true Christopher Nolan movie was the Prestige. All of his same team were crew, and his I, God, his. I always
1: hear about that one. I never seen it. It's the, it's the Magician one, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, I know. Like I know the twist, unfortunately, but yeah, I still, still, I still, the still
0: means happen. to the end are still impressive.
1: Yeah, because I mean, Christopher is kind of a. I know some people say he's overrated, but I do think
0: those people I don't know. Like, them. there's something
1: I special know. about, like, there's a selected few directors that have their own kind of style, and style not only in filmmaking, but even in storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christopher Nolan's one of those guys, and, like, you mentioned that how, like, soundtracks all sound the same, but I think that's just a, a thing of just movies themselves even kind of being the same, and, you know, like, you know, like, people like Nolan... Tarantino, uh, maybe Wes, Wes Anderson. I've never really seen that much Wes Anderson movies. They're all They're just, the same. And but you're just have, like, I like to do this plot right in the music there. But it's just like, there's just something about like, uh, just directors that have their own very distinct style that you know you're watching their movie. That's that's becoming a lot more rare now. At least it feels that way. Yeah,
0: which is why I'm happy that uh, Christopher Nolan left Warner Brothers Mm-hmm. And his next movie is gonna I feel it's gonna go back to basics. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, about Oppenheimer. I think that's what the movie's called too, Oppenheimer. So I'm mm-hmm. interested in seeing what that's ultimately gonna be like.
1: Yeah. But
0: uh but if you check out uh, when you check out the prestige because still worth checking out, um it's you'll see what I mean about that is the last true Christopher Nolan movie. Uh mm-hmm. because after that it just became Warner Brothers' big budget, all that stuff. Um was even that- though it was still good.
1: Was that before or after? Uh, what's the ch- uh, Inception? Was it
0: before it was before Inception. So mm-hmm. uh, the first movie he did for Warner Brothers was Insomnia, which is a remake of the same the same movie. And mm-hmm. then he did um, Batman Begins. After that, he did the Prestige. Then he did the Dark Knight.
1: So Memento was before Warner Brothers
0: yeah it was a it, okay. it was an independent uh film by new market films i think it was it was his first american film after a film festival that he did in in england
1: yeah yeah he's a he's a bad dude um i do have to give him some credit because it almost turned into like a joke of like who the nolan i'm pretty sure like it became a kind of a joke but i do he does have my respect he is a bad dude. Of,
0: yeah, I can- I, he's he's de- he's desperately trying to make people think of physics as cool so mm-hmm. he's really he's really pushing the limits of what people can tolerate science for <laughs> which is why i love interstellar uh and and tenet i really enjoy tenet i have the the unpopular opinion on that Was like oh it's because you're not a fan of quantum mechanics but it's okay <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's uh, i know what he was going after but Anyway, this could go on and on and on, but I think we we touched on on quite a few things there, particularly with the death originality. So that might be the title of this episode. Is there any more originality in uh a, even possible nowadays? And to that I say yes because the market is starving for it. Yeah, uh, but yeah. Well, anyway, uh senior filth, where can the audience uh, learn more
1: about you and check out your stuff? Uh, yeah you can just go to my YouTube channel Rumble channel and uh, I just started an Odyssey uh, account so you could just go there search critical introverts uh, to see my show I'm also doing more trying to do more like solo based kind of video essays here and there I
0: did um, I noticed that um, something about the uh, uh, getting breaking the compromise
1: yeah breaking the compromise um, that's your first one I think no I did one I did a I think another two or three more before that, but, uh,
0: but, not not, but not, that a, as, <laughs> not, not as a, as not, not as a, I guess yeah. high production as this
1: one. Yeah. I'm getting better as, as I do it and I, as I learn how to, how to edit better, you know, so. yeah. <laughs> but I'm also, you know, I, I do have, uh, my art, uh, I have my, my merch. I try to sell, uh, just go to my, just go to my big cartel store. Um, I guess I maybe I'll share some links with you, and you could share them. Yes, for this episode, if Absolutely. anyone's interested. Uh, so is that I am also looking to do um, like a more music-based mix show. Mm-hmm. That's just a matter of just finding the time uh, to fucking to start it because due to inflation, I think <laughs> it's safe to say everyone's a lot busier nowadays. Yeah, that's so. Sure. Uh, but you know. My heart's still in it. I'm still trying to squeeze out some time for that shit. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I still have more stuff than the, I, I do have planned. Uh, I do want to talk just generally more about, like, movies and music and stuff like that. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if, if, if I'll just do, like, a separate podcast, separate from the Critical Introvert Show, or just have the Critical Introvert Show just be a general cultural art kind of discussion thing. But, I don't know. It's just well, I, I'm down to evolve, I guess you
0: know. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I still do the critic Corner because yeah. I just love talking movies and TV and all that stuff. It doesn't yeah. get bored. But for everybody listening on the podcast, uh, all the links will be available. You know, the ML go to www. dot com. Check out the show notes on this episode. You'll find all the links there. Senior Phil, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Dion Industry Show. Love to have you on again to talk anything else. Yeah.
1: We can talk about anything, porn, if you want to talk about <laughs> porn. Sign <laughs> yeah. up for the comments below, folks, if you want. To
0: hear about that. <laughs> All right, folks, that's where we'll leave it. Thanks again, man. We'll see you in the next one. Yes, cheers.